On Monday, May 16, 2011, nearly 10 years before we found ourselves in the midst of a global pandemic, the Center for Disease Control issued a strange and unprecedented warning. They said the apocalypse is coming, and we need to get prepared. It was odd for a government agency to warn Americans of an impending apocalypse, but even more bizarre was the kind of apocalypse that they cautioned people to prepare for. The CDC was warning of a zombie apocalypse. They even offered advice on how to prepare for the zombie apocalypse, create an emergency plan, stock up on supplies like food, water, medications, tools, hygiene, important documentation, first aid supplies, blankets, and clothes. Specifically, a change of clothes for everyone in the family. The CDC wanted to make sure we wouldn't show up naked for the apocalypse. The CD's warning, of course, was the brilliant publicity stunt created by their head of communications who said, public health is not the sexiest topic. So we put out a message every year about how to get prepared for events like hurricanes and earthquakes, but people rarely pay attention to those warnings. So we tried tapping into the current obsession with the zombie apocalypse and to try and develop a new awareness around preparedness. When the CDC launched their campaign, their server crashed in two days with more than 30,000 views, triple the normal traffic they would have for another warning. Of course, our excessive reaction to the CDC's zombie campaign begs the question, why does it take such extraordinary measures for us to pay attention to a warning and do what we need to do to get prepared. Jesus had the same problem as the CDC. People in his generation did not pay attention to warnings or prepare for what was coming. After entering Jerusalem in a public spectacle, driving out all who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturning the tables of the money changers, Jesus came back into the city the next day to teach, and his authority was immediately challenged by the chief priests and elders. In response, Jesus told three upsetting parables about judgment in a row. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the wicked tenants, and the wedding banquet, each story more damning than the one before it in an escalating pedagogical technique of increased warning. Scholar William Barrick described this as the emphatic Semitic triplet, a technique used by Hebrew authors of repeating the same word or idea three times in a row for escalating emphasis. Think about Isaiah singing, holy, 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 or Ezekiel lamenting, ruin, 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 or Jeremiah saying, land, 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 or Amos proclaiming, for three transgressions and for four. Any parent understands this technique if you think about it. For me, it, today, it sounds like this. Let's take a break from TikTok. Okay, now that's enough TikTok for today. Please turn off TikTok immediately. The warning gets louder every time because repeating ourselves is happening because the subject is not listening the first or the second time. 
Repeating oneself is a technique that the prophets used to emphasize the significance of their warning. So when Jesus told these three stories in a row with the same meaning, he was trying to make a very serious impression on his audience. In this case, the chief priests and the religious authorities. His message to them was a summary of the entire Bible, an encapsulation of the entire human story, an overarching meta-narrative about history itself. And it was deceptively simple. Over and over again throughout history, Jesus said, God sent prophets to warn you of impending doom and invite you into a new way of life. And yet over and over again, you have refused to listen to their warning, rejected their invitation, and killed the messengers. That's it. Jesus' parable was not only the story of the history of Israel, who, as we know from the story, rejected prophets like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and the minor prophets and John the Baptist and eventually Jesus himself. Even more disconcerting is that Jesus' parable is our story as well. The story of Western history, the story of American history. In the 20th century alone, God sent us Mahatma Gandhi, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., Bobby Kennedy, Fred Hampton, Harvey Milk, Oscar Romero, John Lennon, Ignacio Elacuria, and Marsha P. Johnson, who all invited us into a new way of life, all who we killed. If we'd listen to them, our world would be so much different, so much better. Yet we refused to listen, and we rejected their message. It's troubling to see how many prophets have come and gone, unheard and unheeded. Even more troubling is to see how Jesus' parable speaks not only to the chief priests and authorities, but directly to us. The crazy part of this history is that what we rejected over and over again from the prophets was not an invitation to prepare for a scary apocalyptic moment of pain, but an invitation to something wonderful, a banquet, a party, a feast. Not just any kind of banquet, but a sensuous and abundant international, intercultural, and inter-ethnic feast like the prophet Isaiah envisioned in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, God will make a feast of rich food and well-matured wines for all people, and on this mountain, God will destroy the shroud that is cast over all nations and swallow up death forever and wipe away the tears from all our faces and take away all the disgrace of the people. The vision of an apocalyptic banquet, a feast for all people, is the dominant image of the kingdom of heaven throughout the Bible. We see it in Abraham eating with angels, in God feeding the Hebrew people in the wilderness, in the prophet's vision of God's good future, in Jesus eating and drinking with prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners, in Jesus feeding the 5,000, and in Jesus saying and teaching parables like the prodigal son. Judaism and Christianity are not alone in this vision of the banquet. In Perhaps the World Ends Here, Joy Haro, an indigenous poet of the Muscogee Nation, writes, The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what we must eat to live, the gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. 
We chase chickens and dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. We gossip. We recall enemies and the ghosts of our lovers. We dream drinks of coffee with us. And they put arms around children. They laugh with us at our poor falling down selves as we put ourselves back together once again. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at the table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate a terrible victory. We've given birth on this table and we've prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy and with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at a table, she says, while we are laughing and crying and eating of the last sweet bite. The apocalyptic banquet Jesus described in the parable of the wedding banquet is a banquet of joy, celebrating love. That's what all weddings are, right? A celebration of love and joy. Why would anyone reject an invitation to a banquet of love and joy? Perhaps the reason is that we're having a banquet of our own for ourselves, and we have no need for another feast. As the parable notes quite clearly, those who need the banquet are the poor and the hungry are much more likely to respond to the invitation. Or perhaps we're participating in another banquet and don't have time for the wedding banquet of Jesus. Maybe we're participating in the banquet of Herod, like the kind he had for his birthday, where John the Baptist's head was served up on a platter. Or perhaps like the banquets of Rome that historian Barry Strauss describes as hedonistic feasts with a breathtaking lack of moderation, eaten to the point of vomiting while ordinary citizens were starving in the streets. There were 19 different riots for food in ancient Rome just during the lifetime of Jesus. Or perhaps like the banquet of Mary, Queen of Scots, who famously said, let the poor eat cake while the royals dined lavishly on the eve of the French Revolution. Or perhaps the banquet of America today. What banquet are we attending? Is it possible that our banquet feels so good we'd reject the invitation to another? Jesus told the chief priests and authorities the world would end at a banquet table. And if they didn't leave the banquet of Herod and Rome, they'd miss out on God's banquet of love and joy. But lest the followers of Jesus become self-righteous in their scorn of religious leaders, Jesus had a warning for the insiders as well. Everyone is invited to the banquet, rich and poor, good and bad. But responding to the invitation is not enough. It's just the first part. You also have to prepare yourself for the feast. Modern readers of this parable are often quite troubled by what seems to be the unfair ejection of a man for failing to have the proper attire. I even heard a pastor once use this text to scold people for not dressing up for church as if Jesus wore a suit or something. Even though the epistle of James directly condemns that kind of toxic interpretation 
What we don't understand when we read this is that in a first century context, a host would have actually provided a robe to anyone who was invited to the wedding and came without one. It's not that this man did not have the proper attire or the resources. It's that he refused to put it on. He was unwilling to wear a robe to the apocalypse. In the first century, individuals were considered responsible for preparing themselves with suitable clothing for a wedding celebration, just as the women were responsible for the oil in their lamps in that other parable. Clothing here is an allegory. It has to be thought through as allegorical, an allegory for moral responsibility, and it is a consistent metaphor in the New Testament for good works of love and justice. Paul frequently used clothing as a metaphor for the fruits of the Spirit. In Colossians 3, he proclaimed, As God's holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In Galatians 3, he proclaimed, As many of you were baptized, you have been clothed with Christ, which means there are no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. In Ephesians 4, he proclaimed, Clothe yourself with the new self, according to the likeness of God, in true justice and holiness. Paul didn't want anyone to show up naked for the apocalypse. He wanted everybody to be ready for whatever was coming by preparing themselves with good deeds of love and justice. Clothing plays an important symbolic role in the book of Revelation as well at the end of the Bible. Some seven different times in the apocalypse, John envisions the saints adorned in special clothing. But the meaning of that symbol is not revealed until chapter 19 when John says that the fine linen of the saints are their acts of justice. He says, let us rejoice for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself Ready. The church has made herself ready. She is clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. And John says the fine linen are the righteous deeds of the saints. With the image of wedding robes, Jesus was reminding his disciples that God does not offer cheap grace. While everyone is welcome to the wedding banquet, much is required of those who enter. Clothing oneself with acts of love and justice is a necessary adornment for those who want to remain at the apocalyptic banquet. Many are called to the banquet, but few will put on what is necessary to stay. An apocalypse. It's not really the end of history or the end of the world, not biblically speaking at least. As the rock band R.E.M. sang, an apocalypse is the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we have known, understood, or experienced it. The word apocalypse means an unveiling or uncovering, a revelation or disclosure of something that was already here but hidden in plain sight. And what was hidden in plain sight is revealed, unveiled, we cannot unsee it. And we're forced to face it and reckon with it. 
An apocalypse is an unveiling of truth that becomes the end of the world as we know it and the beginning of another. The election in 2016 was an apocalypse that unveiled what was already here but hidden from our eyes. The coronavirus pandemic is an apocalypse that has revealed injustices and disparities, the impotence of our leaders and the fragility of our democracy that was here, but covered up and hidden. The murder of George Floyd was an apocalypse that unveiled the systemic racism and white supremacy hidden under layers of colorblindness and post-racial denial. And now we are headed headlong into another apocalypse. The question is, are we prepared? Are we morally and spiritually prepared? Do we have our clothes on? Or will we show up naked for another apocalypse? When I was 18 years old, I made the decision to go to a military academy in Marion, Alabama to become an army officer, and it was certainly an apocalyptic moment, the end of the world as I knew it. My mother drove me to the Deep South to prepare me for what I would experience there, and at the time I didn't really understand what she was doing by driving me there by herself. Halfway through the trip she said to me, hey, let's memorize a passage of scripture together. I was 18 and full of arrogance and vinegar, uninterested in doing any kind of religious activity, especially with my mom in a car. But when my mother gets her mind set on something, there's no point in resisting. She started reading Ephesians 6 about the armor of God, and we memorized these verses together. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of God's power. Put on the whole armor of God, so you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against rulers and authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, and the spiritual forces of evil. Therefore, take on the whole armor of God, she quoted, and we memorized. Stand and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. Put on the breastplate of justice, it says, as shoes, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit at all times. And to that end, keep alert, stay vigilant, and always prevere in supplication for the saints. We memorize that together. I thought she'd chosen this text because the military imagery corresponded with my new career path, but my mother was far wiser than I ever knew. She was putting a fence around me, praying a hedge of protection over me, preparing me to face evil forces I could not even imagine in the world where I was headed, making sure that I would not show up naked for the apocalypse and lose either myself or my salvation. Without knowing my mother, dress me up so I'd be ready for the apocalypse. And thank God she did or I would have never survived. I don't know about you, 
but I showed up naked for the apocalypse of 2016. It took me months to get my wits about me and my clothes back on. I don't want to be caught flat-footed and disrobed and stripped naked this time. Of course, I'm going to do my duty, participate in our democracy, and vote like my daughter's life depends on it, because it does. But I'm not going to put all my hopes and dreams for our family, or our nation, or our world in one election, one person, or one party. Voting is an extremely important part of facing the apocalypse. But we also need to be spiritually prepared for all the possibilities that could happen and whatever outcome might occur by putting on the belt of truth and the breastplate of justice, the shoes of peace and the shield of faith, the helmet of liberation and the sword of the spirit. Because no matter what happens at the apocalypse of 2020, our mission as the followers of Jesus and as a church will always be exactly the same as it has been and always will be now and forevermore. What does the Lord require of us? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. That is our mission today on October 11th, and it is our mission on November 3rd, and it will remain our mission on November 4th and until the day we die, no matter what occurs. Don't show up naked for the apocalypse this time. Let's put our clothes on. Let's put our armor on. Let's get suited up. Let's get spiritually prepared for what might be coming. Let's drape God's loving kindness around our hearts and dress God's justice on our hands and feet so that no matter what happens at this apocalypse, we can stand firm and hold fast to the vision Jesus has called us to create of a beautiful wedding banquet for all people and all nations. A beautiful wedding banquet of joy and love and peace. Amen.